This is the Bitcoin Made Simple Podcast. Here's your host, Corey Tusick. This is the Bitcoin Made Simple Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Tusick. Thanks for tuning in on this episode. Today, I interviewed uh, Surfer Jim. You know him on Twitter, at Surfer Jim W. Surfer Jim's been in the scene for a handful of years now, um, but uh, recently caught some attention of um, Jamath Palia Patia and uh, and Jamath came at him, you know, because uh, Surfer Jim, uh, Jim said, you know, that he thought Bitcoin, it was a Bitcoin conference. And when he saw Jamath there, he was going to, it was a, uh, looked more like a, a shitcoin conference. Um, and and Jamath did not like that and uh, came at him. So uh, I thought that was entertaining and also interesting that, you know, to see how people let their egos get in the way and um, are, you know, insecure enough to to uh, start a, a fight like that but uh yeah it was just interesting to to get uh jim's perspective on what that was like to see whoa oh my god like this is blowing up um and also uh you know we talked about uh we talked about bitcoin obviously and you know how he thinks it can lead to a you know a peaceful world and then uh and then we also uh talked about surfing because obviously surfer jim is a surfer um so we talked about surfing and you know i learned a lot about that because i there's a lot of it i did not know and it, it's interesting to hear that uh you know the the science behind it um you know and figuring out where to go and and how to get it and also he's got a pretty cool project um with uh, long island surf park so you have to check that out but uh yeah without further ado here's my interview with surfer jim but uh yeah so anyway so yeah surfer jim uh thank you for coming on no problem. Thanks for uh, inviting me. Um, so I got to ask you, um, your your name is Jim, but uh, yeah. surfing, uh, the sign behind you, if you're, if you're listening to this, the sign behind him says born to surf. I see some artwork. So surfing has got to be a big, big uh, part of your life, I assume. And a little mini palm tree. Yeah. So those items are strategically placed in this room. Um, actually, they were put up, and then it turns out when I turned the webcam on, they all happen to be in there. <laughs> uh, yeah. um, the board to surf was given to me from a customer who was in Hawaii and, and bought it in a shop, knowing it was perfect for me. Um, so I wait. I, I apologize. I. What was your exact question? Do you want to know? Oh, yeah. No. Um. I was just curious. Like, have you always been surfing, or? Well. Uh, yeah for as long as I um, had the chance to surf. So, which is about 13. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, uh, I found skateboarding first in my neighborhood with some neighborhood friends and that led to surfing. They were inextricably linked, um, always have been. And I, I feel always will be. Um, And like skateboarding was an offshoot. It was originally called sidewalk surfing like back in the fifties when people took what amounted to the bottom of a roller skate uh, and put it on a piece of wood. And the way roller skates work is they have these axles, they call it a truck. That's what's on Mm -hmm. a skateboard, the trucks that hold the wheels. And the way they work is all you got to do is lean and then they turn and, and it's like turning a steering wheel on the car. You lean the thing and it turns the wheels. And that mechanism allowed for you to put that on the bottom of a piece of wood and stand with both feet on it. And, and it acts like a surfboard. So sort of, so yeah. So as a kid, one of my friends in the neighborhood got a skateboard and we all used to want to ride it. Cause he's the only one that had one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then of course we all got them. And, uh, and then surfing came along with that. Cause we all started to tune into the culture 
And yeah, so since 13, since the first time I could get to the ocean and be left alone, uh, the thing, the good thing for me was uh, as a kid from starting about four years old, my parents were uh, mostly my mom. She was adamant about making sure the kids could all swim because mm -hmm. we had water all around us and um, they wanted to have a pool in the backyard for the summers for us to play in. And so I had that growing up. So I had to take swimming lessons and I eventually became a lifeguard when I was 16. Um, but by the time I was 10, 11, 12, I was a very good swimmer. And my, my mom was very comfortable letting me go to the beach without her. And so by the time I was 13, that was when all my friends from high school were all getting on the Fire Island ferry to go over to Fire Island and hang out for the day and, and surf, you know, and I, I couldn't miss it. So that's how it all started. I could literally remember my very first day in the ocean and it was good waves, <clears throat> excuse me, not like the most, the best conditions, but there was the waves had size, but I was okay. Cause I was a strong swimmer, so I could get out there. But what I was totally clueless about was there was a sideways drift and I just didn't know it. I, I didn't know enough about the ocean yet. Mm -hmm. And I, when I got out of the water, I was like a mile down from where all my friends were. And I didn't even notice which way I drifted. And I was like, where the hell is everybody? <laughs> I don't recognize anything. And, you know, I kind of figured it out, walked back. And uh, it was just this weird first day. And I, I didn't get any decent waves. I had nobody to show me anything or whatever, but I wasn't going to quit. Ne neither were any of my, my close friends. And I have friends to this day, literally, that started probably the same weekend as me. And we still all surf and we still talk to each other on a regular basis. That's awesome. Yeah, That's awesome. it's one so, of those things. If you get hooked, it's like it's part of your life. It's because it's it's who you become. Honestly, that's why, you know, the name Surfer Jim is, is was given to me from a close friend who just always called me that and introduced me to everybody that way. And you know, not most of my friends don't even call me that. They just call me Jim. But uh, yeah, yeah, I was I'm looking for a name to go onto Twitter with, and I'm like, yeah, Surfer Jim, why not? Yeah, no, and the, so on the East Coast, I don't know much about surfing um but uh i mean the east coast it's different than the west coast right um well, yeah depending um, on where you are but like what how big you know how big do the waves get because i'm i'm thinking about you know like my family we go to the outer banks and a lot of hit a lot of the east coast places and i never really see any waves where it's like oh man that's like surfable you know um you're just not there when there's waves um you know most people say say similar stuff they don't realize how big waves can get because when the waves are that big they're not usually going to the beach a lot <laughs> of times it happens on stormy days and uh, you know if it's overcast it doesn't even need to be stormy but if it's overcast then the waves are good people aren't just going to the beach to hang out generally but surfers are going mm -hmm. so you won't see a lot of the good days if you don't just go to the beach a lot um mm -hmm. but so there's there is definitely differences every beach uh every ocean um, there's several factors that make waves and, um, they're all different depending, you know, on where you are on the planet. So for example, on the West coast, the wet, the weather in the Northern hemisphere, where I am in like the whole West coast, it's always moving from West to East. The weather is so storms mm -hmm. in the ocean, in the Pacific push waves out ahead of themselves for thousands of miles. And so you can get waves on the West coast, um, way before the storm that's making them shows up. Uh, there's also water depth has a lot to do with it and the distance the waves travel um, can make a, a big difference on how they break um, at the beach when they get there. And, and so that same weather generally goes off the East coast. So it's going West to East. And then as soon as it gets off the coast, you need the right wind conditions to send a swell backwards 
uh, in the opposite direction of the way the weather pattern is actually flowing. So we get these very short period swells. A lot of times they last for a day or so. Um, where I happen to be, we get a lot of southerly winds come right up the East Coast. Uh, we have the Gulf Stream out in the Atlantic that affects uh, the nature of the way waves that come in, you know, how they come into Long Island. Uh, but we get plenty of wave action that comes towards our beach on a, on a fairly regular basis. The, the, one of the things you want, though, is you want the wind at the beach to be blowing from the land out towards the ocean. So that's against the incoming waves. And mm -hmm. it's rare conditions when the wind in the ocean is blowing towards you for a thousand miles or more. But right at the beach, it's blowing towards that storm. But we get those conditions often enough. And when that happens, the waves get very good. They're coming towards the beach, but they're also very smooth and clean from the wind blowing out to sea. Um, when the wind is coming with the waves towards the beach, they get all crumbly and all um, choppy. And it's mm -hmm. not ideal conditions for surfing uh, uh, many of the time. So, so there's a lot of conditions that have to line up. And then there are places in the world where those conditions happen every day. Like, for example, a place in Mexico that I've been to many times called Puerto Escondido. It's a sand bottom. So that's that's helpful if you fall. Right. So there's reef bottoms and there's sand bottoms. Mm -hmm. uh, we on Long Island, we have sand bottoms here for the most part. Um, so that's good. So Mexico has that. Uh, and, and that's helpful because the waves are huge. They get very, very big because it's the water depth offshore is very deep. So there's a, a lot of um, volume in the ocean uh, as mm -hmm. the swells are coming and it gets compressed as it hits the shallower water. And so the, the same wave energy um, can hit two different beaches and rise up when it hits the beach and be different size waves. And so mm -hmm. this place happens to focus the wave energy um, really big, this place, uh, Mexico. Um, uh, and one of the cool things about it is the waves can come from really far away because it's on the West Coast, so it's in the Pacific. But every day, literally every day, the cool air from the very uh, close inland mountains sinks and settles towards the ocean. And the relatively warm water, uh, the air over the ocean is rising. So every morning, the wind is blowing from the land to the ocean, almost like clockwork. And then as hmm. soon as the sun comes up by around 10 a.m., and the land heats up, gets very, very hot. The land, the air over the land starts to rise and it draws in the air over the ocean. So there's very little thermal effect going on, very local thermal effect at this beach. And it happens basically every day. So you could go there and guaranteed to get these offshore winds every morning. And if there's a decent swell in the ocean, it's good. It's probably going to be really good. And so every morning at sunrise, it's crowded. And then the water could be empty at 12 in the afternoon because the wind is on shore. So it's just yeah. this particular set of circumstances in there. And if you're going to go on a surf trip, this is one of the things you do when you're from Long Island. You take surf trips to where the waves are better. And you go mm -hmm. to these places where you, we, you're more likely to get good waves. And so that place, even though it's always a morning session, you can pretty much guarantee to surf every day if there's a swell in the ocean. Whereas other places, it's, you have to wait for different conditions. And it's, uh, you know, you can go days without swell, just like we, we have here. I mean, I could go, you can go weeks without a good swell on Long Island. It's really not the most consistent surf spots. Um, but, mm -hmm. yeah, there's a lot that goes into it. The Outer Banks gets very good waves. You, you just have not seen them. And to address yeah, the size, you kind of hinted on how big does it get. 
we can get pretty good sized waves up to 15 foot and still be rideable right here on Long Island and in other places on the East Coast. And when I say 15 foot, I'm talking about the face of the wave as you're looking out from the beach. Sometimes the back of the wave is smaller. It's a weird um, phenomenon, the way waves break. Mm-hmm. And so there are people that measure waves by the size of the wave on the back of it. So you have to be out in the ocean to get a good sense of it looking looking behind them. Mm-hmm. Um, so 15 foot on the face is about all Long Island can handle. Uh, when the waves get too big around here, it sometimes can just be impossible to get out there because we don't have a lot of these deep channels where you can paddle out next to a big wave and not even get your head wet because it's you're in a channel and the wave energy isn't breaking there because it's too deep. Mm-hmm. So there's all kinds of factors. A lot goes into it. I could talk about this all day, just like Bitcoin, probably. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, no, I was going to say, because it's, you know, you said like uh, surfing, you know, once you start, you don't stop. And it's kind of like similar to Bitcoin. So um, I'm not, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see if, if surfers get more and more into it. Have you seen, I, I assume you, you're aware of the, the Bitcoin beach then. Oh, uh, yeah. I can't wait to go visit. Yeah. Jack Mallers was just down there. If he still, if he may still be. Um, and they just had like a surf. They just had a uh, like a surfing um, competition or something. I think a couple weeks ago. I I wouldn't know. There's competitions all over the world regularly. Oh, yeah. You know, nowadays it used to not be like that. Of course, when I was much younger. Uh, you know, it's funny. I've seen a lot of things um, develop, like get invented and develop in my lifetime. And so, like professional surfing is one of those things. When I was a kid, there was none. There was surf contests, but there was no professional worldwide surfing yeah. circuit. And you certainly couldn't make a million dollars a year being a surfer, but people all over the world do it now, guys and girls. They pay them very well, and they're very good. Well, and, and it's cool to that, see. They just set like that. that record. I what just record? saw there was a record. It was the the largest wave ridden. I mean, I forget how big it was. Yeah. So again, you know, measuring is a little bit difficult in, in these situations. No one's out there with a tape measure, so you're yeah, judging yeah. it off of videotapes and other stuff. Um, that probably would have been a place called Nazare, which is in yeah, uh, yeah Portugal. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So again, if you were to, you could probably go through the Surfline website. They do these stories on various surf spots and they explain why waves break a certain way in a certain spot. And they have all kinds of very cool graphics, graphics, which explain uh, uh, tidal conditions, currents, direction of currents, the, the bathymetry of the bottom, you know, which is the contour of the bottom. And you can get a sense of why a place like that, uh, the wave can get so huge. And then right next to it, you know, 500 yards down the beach, it's half as big or less. And it has a lot to do with the bottom contour focusing the ocean's energy like a funnel. Like if you pour fluid into a funnel, you can throw a lot in the beginning, but it has to squeeze into a smaller amount and something's got to give, you know. Uh, in, in the case of waves, what ends up happening is as they squeeze, they rise up. That's where, the, that's where they release their energy. It, it defies gravity and they just keep getting taller. They got nowhere else to go. And then mm-hmm. eventually they get tall enough in the forward motion uh, allows the top of the wave to pitch forward and that's when they start breaking mm-hmm. yes. that's wild there's so much science behind it my brother is a physics teacher i gotta tell him to do like a, a section with his students on on waves because i mean you know we don't i live in pittsburgh so we don't get waves in pittsburgh on our three no. rivers um, oh you might one day when we build a surf park near you yeah yeah that's true you know that's i'm true. working on that right no, no, you're wor- you're working on surf parks. Oh yeah, so a lot of people know this, so I'll sh- I'll show it in the beginning of your show. Yeah, yeah, of the go end. for it. Yeah, the Long Island Surf Park. It's uh, just um, LongIslandSurfPark.com, and uh, 
my good friend from high school, Chris, and his son, Brett, are uh, going to build a surf park. And I've been a consultant on this project since we first thought of it five, six years ago. And we have our a test tank that I built based on the pool designer's specifications. And we run little mini waves and test all the features of the pool and make sure it does what we want to do. And we have, uh, we have land we're going to build it on. We have site plan approval and, um, we just uh, announced the Series A funding round. We have a, a bunch of money already committed to the project, but we want to raise some more. And so anybody that hears this, if you're interested, you just go to the website and contact, uh, you know, the guys in, that are involved in that end of the deal. You know, I, I don't, I don't get involved with that part of it, obviously. I just, I'm just yeah. helping out from a technical perspective. Uh, for those who don't know, I'm a builder. I, I build homes for a living. So I, I just know how mechanics work. And of course, being a surfer, my friend also being a surfer, he's constantly asking me questions about it. So that's how I just, I end up being involved just because we're friends. And he's yeah. always, from the very beginning, he's like, well, what, if we built it, what would you do here and there? And then, so my input went into the design from the, when, when we started it with the original pool designer who has a lot of experience with fluid dynamics. So he knew how to shape the reef of our pool to make the waves break just the way we want them to and then mm -hmm. he also designed the mechanism that'll create the waves the, the pumps and the different things that are going to move the energy of the water to make it become a wave right so it's because mm -hmm. it's going to happen in a few yards versus thousands of miles in the ocean so you know all that requires energy so it's it's very cool if you go to the website it's very um elaborate website it's got all this 3d visuals of what it's going to look like and stuff and it's pretty cool we're gonna have a nice clubhouse with locker rooms and a restaurant and a lounge and all this you know it's really, yeah, really no, cool that's, and and, that's uh, awesome. and so i say when we build one by you because um the the young guy involved brett he's in, in his early 20s and um he's been involved since he was a teenager so he knows everything about how to build a wave pool this kid knows probably more than almost anyone on the planet it's crazy uh, even though we haven't actually built it yet, he he knows all the metrics of this thing more than anybody. And he wants to build at least 10 more in the next 10 years after we build the first one. Mm -hmm. And so they could be put anywhere where investors are willing to put the money and you think there's a large enough demand where people will uh, go and use it and it could be you know profitable. We, of course, have so many surfers on Long Island that it's not a problem to get to, to fill the place up every day with people that will want to use it. So, you know, based on all of our metrics and how much it'll cost to run the thing and all the rest, it, it looks like it should be a very profitable project. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the idea Maybe we can of, bring it to Pittsburgh. That would be, well, it could go anywhere. Cause yeah, I mean, you could literally do it anywhere. Well, yeah. And so like, if you think about how you roll it out across the country, let's say we're on an Island surrounded by water and there's thousands of surfers here and the coast is not very far from this, this, where we're going to build this. It's only like six or eight miles away. Um, which is not very far inland, but it, most surfers live that far from the ocean. So it's nothing. So we're literally, you can almost say we're at the beach with this thing. Um, mm -hmm. But you can go inland, say to like inland from the coast of New Jersey or Delaware or Virginia, anywhere where there are already surfers and put the thing 50 miles inland mm -hmm. and they'll travel 50 miles to go surf it. But so will people 50 miles on the other side. Somewhere and then you go like another Jersey hundred miles. Philly. What's that? Like between the Jersey and Philly, like well, Jersey yeah. coast and Philly, you know, right. there's a lot of people so, in Philly that'll. Yeah, wherever there's a lot of people. So now you got all the surfers from the coast are going to drive backwards to go surf it. And all people that don't have to drive all the way to the coast now might go check mm -hmm. it out and learn to surf. And you just keep doing that. You just keep hopping your way inland and keep 
strategically placing them around cities and people will gravitate towards them because it's like a water park. Some people are going to want to do it and it won't matter that they didn't grow up by the ocean. Um, and, And it could be. And so here's the thing. There are already at least three very unique, specific designs of wave pools out there in the world. Very completely different the way the the uh, waves are generated and the shapes of the pools and stuff like that. And those three different designs of, of all three, one of them is not economically viable. The other two seem to be, but I don't, I don't personally know their metrics. They have lots of usage. Uh, and, the, and one has multiple versions and that probably would be the most popular one. Um, we think ours, uh, you know, like everything, you, you take certain things that work. So it's not like stealing someone's idea that certain elements have to be in every pool. So we built ours around all the right principles, we think, and then we invented some stuff. So for for sure, the shape of our reef is a one of a kind. So uh, and mm-hmm. then the way that we make the waves, we think, is going to be uniquely different. So there's we're hoping that our, ours will be a, another version with hopefully better features in some ways and whatnot. And the idea being that this wave pool idea is we're not the first ones, clearly, and we probably won't be the last ones. And it's it's the kind of thing that uh, people want this kind of fun, right? Mm-hmm. So if it's profitable, someone will build it. And so there could be a day where there's wave pools in every big city, just, mm-hmm. just like there are tennis courts or something else. You just don't know. Uh, mm-hmm. But it has to start somewhere. And it's started already. And it's part of the reason. And I'll tell you, my friend Chris, who, who came home uh, from Florida, and called me up and said, Jim, we got to make a wave pool. I'm like, what happened to you? What happened in Florida that you're so amped? Well, what he did was, you know, I didn't know he was doing it, but he and some other friends rented the Typhoon Lagoon wave pool in Disney World because what they figured out was they made a wave pool that works like a toilet tank. Literally, they pump a bunch of water into a big giant tank behind the pool and they open up a gate and all that extra water comes flooding Uh. out by gravity and it makes a wave and they open it all day long for people to jump around in a man-made wave. But they figured out you could ride a board there, a real surfboard. Some surfers looked at it and said, hey, can we try this after hours? They convinced the right people. Well, then Disney World basically literally rents it out to anybody. They have a price for it for X amount of waves either before the place opens in the morning or right after it closes at night. And so he did that and came home and said it was unreal because it's so perfect. You just, the wave just comes right at you and there's no crowd to worry about. It's your wave. You just go. And Mm -hmm. so having that experience and not having to worry if you're going to catch a wave, you go to the ocean and so many variables, you just don't know. (laughs) You hope you're going to do good. You hope you're going to have a good session, but it changes when the wave is very repetitive and easy to read and stuff like that. So we get this in certain surf spots. Naturally, there are certain waves that are much easier to learn on. Long Island's not the place to try to learn. We don't have that, generally don't have that kind of nice, smooth, mechanical, always the same type of wave. But in a wave pool, of course you can. Mm-hmm. So he was just so amped on the whole thing. And what's funny about the the wave pool um, in Typhoon Lagoon, it, it was built in the 80s. And there were a couple previous versions i think the very first wave pool ever built was in arizona again in like a water park with tiny little waves not meant for surfing there was one built in pennsylvania i forget where um allentown maybe i believe Mm -hmm. that was uh i used to see it in the surfing magazines in the 80s again not specifically built for surfing but they had a contest there i remember it um and so the idea has been around and it was only until about four or five years ago when a company in spain really made a, a wave pool that 
turned everybody's attention in the surfing world because it was specifically made for surfing. Uh, but the others were already out there and the Typhoon Lagoon was out there and it's just operating like it has been for 30, 40 years, whatever, you know, however many years ago they built it. And uh, yeah, so it's a thing. <laughs> Surf parks mm -hmm. are a thing and I don't think they're going to go away. And with uh, my friend's son and his enthusiasm, uh, he's just going to keep certainly building. not going to go away then. Yeah, he's he's pretty amped on the whole thing. And he's a smart kid, man. He knows a lot. Uh, he's he's really he's he's literally in charge of the project. Oddly enough, he's not in charge of the money. His father is. But um, <laughs> when I talk to his dad all the time about it, he's like, I don't ask Brett. I don't I don't know what it, he's, he knows all the shit. He just like he's just kind of like. But his father's a businessman. He's run his own business for like 30, 40 years. And the kid grew up there. He understands what it takes to run a business, be responsible in the office, take care of your paperwork, call your customers. So this kid had experience of being a responsible adult when he was a teenager working for his father inside the in the, in the company. Mm -hmm. So he took the reins of this project and he's really running things like it's it's really cool to see because, wow, man, so many kids his age are just lazy shits. You know, they, they really are, man. This society's gone to crap. But this kid is not one of them. He is a go-getter, you know, whatever. Well, the, the, that those kids are going to be the ones that really benefit from this lazy generation. Yeah, um, and because they're going to bend, they're going to they're going to reap the rewards of of their hard work, and you know. Yeah. Um. Let me just uh, add to that. They they both understand and own Bitcoin. They're nice. not nearly as as enthusiastic as me, but they do get it, and um. So I got to I got to throw this out there because this is a Bitcoin podcast. So this is one of the cool, interesting facts about our wave pool that we figured out. I didn't. Brett did. Mm -hmm. um, the cost of making waves is not cheap. Moving water, water's heavy and getting it to move, especially in a good sized wave you could surf, takes a lot of energy. So we're going to use uh, things that run off electricity. The, the motors and pumps and different things are going to run off electricity. Of course, there's filtration and all this stuff. There's mm -hmm. a lot of electricity. So the cost off the grid is pretty high, but we have natural gas here on Long Island that's way cheaper. And they make these things called cogen plants, which is a way to make electricity in various with various different input sources. So you can use solar panels, geothermal, natural gas, uh, and you can you know, uh, use that input to run generators to create your own electricity. So that's what we're going to do. So we're that's making right. electricity on site. So now you got these generators running to run everything else. When you make a wave, the pumps and stuff that make a wave, they turn on, turn off, turn on, turn off. So the electricity draw on the generators is not constant. Um, I've been told you can turn on and off Bitcoin miners without a problem. And so so we could constantly be cycling up and down Bitcoin miners to have a constant usage of our generator energy. That way your electricity is not getting, your generator energy is not getting wasted. Well, right. So, cause I said to Brett, what are we doing with the excess electricity? If these things are running and you don't need them, let's say you're in between waves or the session stops, the generators are still running. Maybe they could cycle down and run a little slower or whatnot, but you know, there's still a minimum they're just going to run. And I said, well, could you, what do you do with the excess? And he says, you sell it back to the grid. But of course, they don't give you a very good price. No. So I said, a much better deal. So I said, why don't Bitcoin. we mine some Bitcoin with it? So I had some talks with some people and it's a serious consideration at this point. We're going we're gonna to look into incorporating. So one of the things we already figured out we're going to do is we're going to take the heat off of all this equipment, not just the generators, but the pumps that make the waves. 
and we're going to put that heat into the water because we, you know, it gets pretty cold here in the winter. And no matter how cold it gets, middle of the winter, a foot of snow on the ground, if the waves are good, somebody will go surfing. They'll put their wetsuit on and they'll deal with the, the temperature of the water and the wind if it's just right and they're hardy enough. Um, but we think we can keep the water in our pool 60 degrees even in the winter. And in the winter, the water temperature on Long Island gets below 40. Mm. So that's a huge difference. So nobody will have a problem surfing in our wave pool in the winter because we're going to be able to keep the water warm with all the equipment, the yeah. heat that you have. So this is a very green project. Another thing we're doing, um, I work with a guy uh, in construction. There's, there's a lot of different ways to build. And one of them is called ICF, which is insulated concrete forms. And so what that basically is, is two pieces of foam that are attached by a plastic spacer and they stack and you pour concrete inside them and you have a concrete wall that's got foam on both sides already, two inch, two mm. and a half inches on both sides. And you could build buildings out of this stuff and you could build a wave pool out of this. And that we also, there's also technology for putting foam under the slab on the bottom. And uh, the guy who, who sells this system, he does this for pools all the time because what you don't realize is that, especially in the summer, the mo you lose most of the heat out of a pool from the ground below the pool and not yep. from evaporation above. So yep. you, if you insulate the bottom of your pool, you won't have that problem. So that's another, we, we got a lot of green technology that we're putting into this. Um, Chris, who's building it, he's very big on solar panels. He has them on his house, at, you know, uh, in his backyard for his home and he's got them on his commercial building. And so of course we're going to probably have them at the surf park. So again, this is input through the cogen plant when, you know, uh, during the day we could run the generators a little less or whatnot. And then at night, of course, you know, you, you're just on mm -hmm. the generator. So there's a lot going on here, man. It's very cool. Very That's cool. Awesome. Very serious project. And, uh, you yeah, know, so well, I'm curious to see how that, how that grows because that's something, I mean, I own multiple businesses and that's where I look at like, you know, anything where it's like, Oh, how could this turn into a Bitcoin business? You know what I mean? Like, and I feel like in the future, that's what mining is going to be is there's going to be a lot of companies where it's like, you know, Hey, we have excess energy. Um, you know, let's just pump that into, you know, our Bitcoin mining rig. Um, and anybody with excess energy is going to go, well, you know, why sell it back to the grid if I can throw some miners in a shed out back or something, what, you know, whatever people are creative, of course. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, definitely it's something a, to consider. Um, and, you know, it's not going to be easy. Uh, I pay attention to the space and getting, you know, there's very few chip manufacturers getting mm -hmm. good ASICs right now is not only expensive, but not fast. Uh, and that demand doesn't seem to be diminishing, you know, no, as the price goes certainly up, not gonna... people are going to chase, more, you know, the, every, even the little fraction of a, a bit of hash rate is worth more. And so people go, well, screw it. You know, I get some KYC free sats. I'm doing it. Yeah. I've been, I keep thinking about it all the time, but I'm not in a stable situation where I'm going to, you know, I, I happen to be, I'm going to be moving soon. And so like, I can't add that into my life just yet, but if I ever found myself in a position where I could, I would definitely consider it. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's what, I mean, we're, we're in the process of uh, the uh, building a house and everything. And I'm like looking at like, Oh man, you know, like let's get self-sustaining. Let's get some solar panels. Let's get all this stuff going. And, and my wife's like, so we don't have like electric electrical bills. I'm like, Oh yeah, yeah. That, but I mean, you know, <laughs> we could like mine some Bitcoin too. Right. Um, uh you know, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a, you know, that's how I want to do it. And I, I feel like there's a lot of us going to be doing that. So I'm, but yeah, I'm like you where it's like, I'm not going to be in the same place right now in like six months. So 
So I can't, I'm not going to start building my operation yet, but I have been paying attention to it. And those miners are getting more expensive and it's taking longer to get them. Yeah. Um, Well, we'll see what happens, you know, as time goes on, it's not going to go away. So there might still be opportunities in the future to, to get involved. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, you just, you just never know when Bitcoin's a million bucks, maybe it's a really easy opportunity at that point. That's true. You know, um, uh, you know, talking about sustainable homes and whatnot. Um, last year, at the BitBlock Boom Conference, um, Katie the Russian put on a, a, a seminar for everybody. Um, she called it Underground Citadel. It was really good. A lot of great speakers. But the, the one guy that I was really, um, that, that really caught my attention was the guy who talked about the sustainable homes that he already builds in Texas, where people collect their own rainwater, make their own electricity, wind and solar, and however they can, geothermal, anyway, you know, like, and these people literally took completely off the grid. And so um, that technology just keeps getting better, which is awesome because we all get to benefit from it. And, and then um, through going to conferences, I, I met lots of cool people. And w- one guy in particular uh, that I'm friends with who owns land in Baja, and he wants to develop that and create like a community uh, a, a self-sustainable community and he's already working on it down there in terms of um he, he's got to get there's underground water that's got to get pumped up so he's working on getting all the right permits for that kind of stuff for the local uh, municipal whoever uh but yeah. it's a real it's a really rural area with not a lot of people he says that you know the government's really chill um you know this that's key there's a government everywhere right so you got to deal with somebody who says we we own this you need our permission for x y or z so mm-hmm. the guy has a thousand acres but he's still got, he's still got to deal with whoever uh but he's got you know he's he's american but he's been living in mexico for decades so he's he's basically a local speaks the language and knows tons of people so it seems like a really cool opportunity and you may notice a guy on twitter untapped growth he's a uh, mm-hmm. cattle farmer among other things he's actually got a different business that he earns a living at but he's uh been building up um a herd of cattle and regenerating soils by moving the cattle around like using old world techniques and he's got a really cool as a matter of fact you got to go listen to john vallis uh podcast from my probably yesterday or the day before where he and another guy i wish i could remember the other guy's name uh they're both into the sustainable farming stuff and uh, untapped growth. His name is Joel. He is uh, also in touch with my friend in Mexico. We, we've all talked about working together on this project. You know, people that have different knowledge, like I have knowledge of building. Um, you may know another guy on Twitter, Stony Bits, and he's mm. a, a guy who builds these incredible rock walls with with his big giant orange excavators. <laughs> and he's aware of the project, and he thinks it's a cool thing. Like maybe he'll come down and help build some walls and some roads and stuff. Who knows, man? But there's plenty of Bitcoin people that are are already anticipating some citadel lifestyle where they live with just other like minded Bitcoiners, far from the oppression of the standard governments and all the bullshit we deal with every day i know i want that i want to just be left alone uh-huh. i just want to be able to go surfing live my life with the people i like and family and friends whatever and you know i don't plan to bother anybody i just want nobody to bother me but unfortunately know, we live in a world of insane amounts of rules and bullshit and you get extorted left and right by other people just to live you know i want to stay being a general contractor for 30 some odd years i still got to pay a bunch of parasites a bunch of money to give me a little plastic card with my picture on it this is i'm a contractor it's like they don't give me knowledge they just give me permission mm-hmm. and and like why do i need that permission because they have the monopoly on violence in this area if i don't do it they can extort money out of me by just 
getting a judge to write words on paper and they take it right on my bank account. It's just terrible. Mm-hmm. This is just other humans extorting their neighbors. That's all yep. government is. It's parasitic giant organization on the planet. I can't stand it. So I, I don't <laughs> like any of it. And I wish it would just go away. Everybody can be free. And I think people would get along. But I, I said this to somebody last night on another interview that it would, it would work as long as we had hard money. If everybody had good hard money. But mm-hmm. when you have one group that can make the money out of thin air, then it's never going to be fair. And they're always going to have the power. And that's what we've that's what we've seen in most of humanity. There's always yeah. been some government that controlled the coinage or something. And the rest of everybody had to do what they said. And, you know, so they had the biggest stockpile, even when there was real money, like gold was money. It was still the people that had the most of it that sort of controlled it that said what goes you know, yeah. how, how it works and what's the rules and whatever. And they get to cheat and everybody else doesn't. And, you know, well, what do you think about that? Because, you know, so there's always the, the, the FUD that, you know, government can stop or government can stop Bitcoin. But we know, you know, you and I both know and anybody listening can can do the research and come to the conclusion <laughs> that governments, nobody can stop it. You know, what I mean, they right. they've already looked into it and tried. And if they could have, they would have. Um, but like you said, literally for eternity there's been governments that have been in control of the coinage so since they can't stop it what do you think they're going to do fade away over time because what will happen is the people who get paid by government when they slowly start to realize the money they're getting paid in is garbage they won't be as loyal it's going to take a while because there'll be some real holdouts that believe in the state. They believe in the mission, you know, what they're hired to do. And, and you know, it's sad. And I, people are going to take this, that I'm, you know, um, what's the word? Cold, callous, you know, piece mm-hmm. of shit when I say stuff like this. But every secretary, every, every worker, every custodian, it doesn't matter at what level. If you work in or for government, you are helping to perpetuate the most parasitic, destructive organization on the planet, a group of people extorting and violently destroying the lives of everybody else. And if you mm-hmm. work for the government, get paid from the government at any level, you're helping it to succeed. It's sad mm-hmm. to say most people are not doing this on purpose. They just want to go to work. They're really good people, love their families, love, go to church, whatever it is. But they and they don't know it. They just don't understand it because they don't see the big picture. They don't see how government is just other people. It's not mm. a mysterious thing. Every decision that gets made by a government entity is made by a human being. And it's mm-hmm. disseminated outward through other human beings who tow the line. And they tow the line because they want their paycheck. Mm-hmm. And it starts at the top with central bankers. They pull the strings for everything they set Mm -hmm. the narrative worldwide if you want money the central bankers can tell you how to act to get it so politicians are beholden to them large corporations that want laws written in their favor are all beholden to the people who can give them lots of money it's as simple as that but nobody knows this crap you don't know it until you learn about money and they don't teach you that in school because the government runs the schools they don't want you to know yeah. So you learn yeah. about it when you learn about Bitcoin. And that's the well, only reason I know about it. That's isn't that the truth? Because I had no idea. I've said this a couple of times on the podcast before, but up until a handful of years ago, I thought that if Fort Knox got raided and they found out that 
we didn't have enough gold to back all of the US dollars we put out there that like the country would fall apart. You know what I mean? Like I thought that was the most important thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, our currency, if they found out our currency was worthless, it would it would go to, you know, go to shit and everything would fall apart. And then now I'm like, oh, my God, it, it's always been worthless. And, you know, it's been worthless for 50 years now. And, you know, there's a chance it wasn't entirely worthless at the Bretton Woods agreement. But, you know, who's to say if they did a proper accounting for the gold we actually had and the amount of money that was already printed and the, that they were going to continue to print. But, you know, it was supposedly backed that you could always turn in dollars for gold. But it's been a it's so f- unbelievable how it's it's a, such a known thing. And it's been known for a very long time. It's the reason why Nixon took us off the gold standard because enough worldwide people understood. We didn't have, figured it out. We didn't have the gold to back the money. So it's just like a worldwide joke that money is backed by nothing anymore. And, you know, they did a great job of indoctrinating people and, you know, entire generations that this is just this thing called money and we all just use it. So just shut up and, and deal with it, right? Like the government mm-hmm. issues it and you don't have... You don't know where it comes from. Like you see a documentary. Oh, they printed in a factory with all these safeguards. And oh, wow, look how cool our money is. But meanwhile, you don't realize the government gets to print a hundred dollar bill for like nine cents. You know, that's called seniorage. They make a ton of money making money just on the making of the money. Forget about all the other ancillary effects of creating new money and, and the favors that it brings for the people that are rich and powerful. Really well, crazy. the fact that the, the the Federal Reserve is a private company. Oh well, like, that's a whole nother rabbit hole. That like, that's mind don't blowing. Even know. Well, that's the yeah. that's is one of the most absurd. This is the craziest, most absurd thing. I'm glad you brought it up because you've got this government, the United States government. People think the Fed is part of it, but it's not. It's a corporation run by great marketing. Great marketing. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing the they keep doing it, and and tons of people know this i mean i'm not the only one and yet nobody seems to stand up and say how is this still happening it's almost as if well again you know they control the money so i think people are afraid to fire them thinking Mm -hmm. that somehow they're going to get killed or something you know like i don't know what the threat model is for each person in their head but there's enough people that know at every level of government that it's a private corporation so what does that mean? I own a private corporation. Can I call up the government and say, hey, uh, they've been doing, I think, a crappy job and I think it could do better. Can I be the guy who issues the money, please, and sets the interest rates? I'm a corporation, too. I got some mm-hmm. smart friends. We can do it. No, no, I don't get that option. And nor does anybody else. They have the monopoly on it. A group of people that most people in the world don't know. My understanding is that some of the stockholders of the Fed are foreign banks, uh, meaning that uh, foreigners that own the stock of those banks own the Fed that makes our money. And they get to make money out of thin air and get a return on that money. And when, let's say, this whole thing with bond yields going down and and whatnot, I I, I don't know all the jargon. I hear smart Mm -hmm. people like Preston Pish talk about it. But like the buyer of last resort is the Fed. Why is that? Well, they can make money and they can give it to anybody for the asset that that is losing value just so they could prop up some industry or the economy. So these people that can make money out of thin air into the U.S. economy, U.S. dollar bills, some of them are foreigners. Yeah, that's insane. That's off the charts insane that they have the right to make out of thin air U.S. dollar bills and pump them into the world and buy real things with them. Like when a bank issues a mortgage out of thin air, if you stop paying them back the money they created from nothing, they get to come and take your actual house. 
Yeah. It's so <laughs> lopsided. It's insane. But we, we thank you, Mr. Bank, for the mortgage, the enslavement of the next 30 years. Thank you so much. I get to live in a house and I get to be beholden to you forever. Now, you know, it, I didn't see it. I did, I did it. I've had several homes. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. And now I'm going the other way. I'm selling my home and I'm not going to buy another one anytime soon. I don't I don't care. You know, it's like I own a home. Even if I didn't have a mortgage, I still got to pay rent to live here because there's a property tax. And the problem mm-hmm. with that is you can't just pick the home up and leave and run away where they can't grab you. So mm-hmm. they got you, so to speak, by the balls, because if you don't pay the property tax, they go to the court and get someone with a black robe to write words on paper. They send that over to the county clerk's office and they turn the title from your house over to the town who then puts it on the open market and sells it right out from under you. You have nothing to say. Like you literally you have no control. This is the power of the state, other humans who hate you and steal your money. No, they don't probably hate you, but it's disgusting. No, no they, they do. get I think to do this. And there, this is legal criminal activity. This is what we call legal. So what is yeah. legal? Legal is simply a bunch of people agreed. Let's write down a bunch of rules and we'll call it this thing legal, which allows us to do it. And we can also put in there that only us can do it. <laughs> yeah. So like, wow, how do they get away with it? Well, because they have the monopoly indirectly. So local governments indirectly have a monopoly on money because they're connected to the people that make the money all the way at the top. So all the local governments get money from the states, the states get money from the feds. It's all like a trickle down. So everybody's beholden to the money makers, right? Um, but yeah, like they have that. And because they can, they have lots of money, they can pay armed enforcers, our neighbors to do what they think they're doing is protecting us. But really what they're doing is they're protecting the rules of the state to allow for everybody to remain being extorted at every level, uh, every tax, gasoline tax, you know, everything you buy in a store that has a, a sales tax, you know, inheritance tax. I mean, do they tax us enough, these parasites? It's insane. And then you got somebody who will argue, well, we need to build the road, blah, blah, blah. bullshit all day long. Societies all over the world built everything they needed without a government taking the money. Just individuals just do it because they can't stand the fact that it's not there. Wealthy people will pay for and maintain roads all day long so the trucks that they send out so that their business can operate don't keep breaking down. There's all Mm -hmm. kinds of incentives in the right places for people to step up and fix the roads, right? We don't need government to do it. It's a joke. And not to mention, they do it at 10 times the price of a local guy would do it. You know what I mean? Like everything's so screwed up. You know, who would fix the roads? Well, the same people who do it now, they just wouldn't get paid through government. They would operate on the free market, uh, you know, competing for the contract for whoever's going to pay. It's trying to like do a better people, job for a better They price. would always do a better job because they want the referral. They want the next job. Government doesn't give a shit. They don't have to worry about getting the next job. They have, never have any skin in the game. They could always yeah. steal more money to build anything they want to build. It's just mm-hmm. so absurdly lopsided how one small group of humans can rule over every other human on the planet simply because they've figured out a way to control money and indirectly the monopoly on extortion and violence. Extortion is simply, you know, stealing your money or even the threat of extortion. You know, that's what most people operate under. They operate under the threat of being extorted or having violence come against them because they've seen it happen and they don't want it to happen to them. That's why you see everybody out there capitulating, wearing these stupid face diapers everywhere they go. Most people, you know, anybody my age, anybody that's been around for several decades, it's got to be scratching their head going, how the hell did we survive all these years? I don't know. Are they all brainwashed? No, I think most of them just don't want to rock the boat. They're afraid to get in trouble from these other humans that might write words on paper and say, you owe us money. It's a ticket. It's a fine. You owe us money. It's fucking extortion. Excuse me. 
just no, the no, extortion of some humans to uh, against their neighbors. It's disgusting at every level. I, I well, can't you, believe yeah. I used to just not really even realize it. I just went through life just, oh, well, it's how it is. Now I'm so against it. I just I can't not speak about it. It bothers the hell out of me. It's one of the worst injustices on the planet. That's why I'm so interested in Bitcoin and helping Bitcoin succeed way beyond my lifetime, because future generations are at stake here. Right. We've got parasites on the planet for centuries that have been doing this to the people who don't have the power. Bitcoin levels the playing field to such an extent that there will be very few, if any, really big power pockets on the planet. There's no incentive to take a limited resource that you have, your money, and build bombs and send people across the planet if there's no significant return, because you can't get mm -hmm. that back. When you can print it, it's fine, but you can't get it back unless you provide value to somebody willing to give it to you or you steal it uh, with violence. Problem is with Bitcoin, especially once it's ubiquitous and people understand it, you won't be able to steal anybody's Bitcoin because everybody will know how to custody it. Yeah. And you, you, you know, if you have to go to multiple geographic locations to unlock several different private keys, it's going to be hard to put somebody at gunpoint and drive them around the city and get them to give you the Bitcoin without getting caught. So mm -hmm. incentives disappear when everybody controls their own money in a way that it can't be stolen, this idea of unconfiscatability. And yeah, I mean, all kinds of things change when the world has an uninflatable money system that's unconfiscatable, no matter how much power somebody else has. So you can get big thugs come, uh, kidnap you, put you in a box, threaten your life, kill your wife right in front of you, do all kinds of things for you to give the private key. But if you never do, they never get the money. So Depends on how far you want to take it, how much torture you can, you know, so some people are going to get their Bitcoin stolen, no question. But if you live in a world where you don't have a bunch of parasites setting all the rules, you could have a society where everybody's allowed to own whatever amount of protective devices they need to protect themselves. I don't care if it's a freaking cannon, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you're not hurting people, you should be able to have a tank in your garage. I don't really mm -hmm. care. I'm not hurting you. Just don't drive it over to my house and blow me up for no reason. Right. Mm -hmm. So like people already have this human beings on this planet have access to tanks. They're called mm -hmm. the military. There are people. Right. They've been given instructions. Don't drive down the street and blow everybody up. So they don't. Right. Mm -hmm. There's really no incentive for that. Right. So people don't just go killing each other for the hell of it, generally speaking. And in a world where there's only one finite amount of money to work with, the only way to get more is to is to trade value. All incentives change for everybody. Everything changes. It's completely different world, completely different. And yeah. I just hope future generations get to live in that world, the one I didn't get to see. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that that's why, you know, the, it's funny, you know, initially I get into Bitcoin. I'm like, oh, this is, you know, this is a really cool thing. It's going to be the way of the future for money. And now I'm to the point where I'm like, this might be the most important invention in the history of the world. I say um, it all the time. It is. Because it, it, is, it's, you know, I, it can solve so many problems like that. Well, uh, let me, I'll put it to even a better way that you can actually, agree, it's easier to agree. It's one thing to say it's going to solve all the future problems, but how about looking at it from this perspective? I see money as a tool that humans um, were able to uncover as part of their nature. So there are certain Universal principles I've, I've come to notice in my 60 years on this planet, um, plenty of physical first principles that you can't argue with, like gravity, right? But there mm -hmm. are these human first principles that we are fairly, uh, I feel we're stuck with. And there's, there's always going to be a spectrum. Some people are affected less and some more. 
but certain things operate on us humans all the time. One of the, and some of them are concepts. So one of them is a concept like trust or trustworthiness. We judge this every single day, not just of other people, but of other things. Do we trust that, that railing on that stairway? You know, we're making judgments constantly deciding on a, a concept, a, a human first principle, the idea of finding how we can trust so we can move forward. Trust where we're walking, trust what we're listening to. It doesn't matter. We're, trust, we're trying to trust everything constantly. It's literally never stops. Mm-hmm. So that, that's just there, right? Um, so another sort of human principle is this idea of a, a tool called money. So we take an object and we give it, or we, we figure out that it has characteristics that we can exploit, all right? That's, that's how I kind of see it. And we exploit them for our, to, to benefit another part of our nature, which is to become more efficient. So in praxeology, in, in the book, Human Action, um, there's this concept that humans are always trying to remove current and future uneasiness. And we are. It's another thing we do thousands of times a day. We're always making decisions to, you know, to, to get where we want to go, uh, to feel better, to experience something. It's all to like get us to a better place than where we are right this minute. Or if we're in a good place right now, we're thinking of how we're going to remove some future uneasiness, like, you know, like next week, uh, you know, it's a constant thing in our head. So we're always doing that. And, um, because of that, we, we, we go towards how can I do a job faster? And so there's this, again, this natural inborn human principle of wanting to be more efficient with our time to get more out of life. If I can work less, less uh, hours, maybe I could go surfing more, you know, and mm-hmm. still live and still buy my groceries. Like it's always a trade-off. Humans have been doing this ever since we were aware of our surroundings. It's this idea. Let's get efficient. Let's go hunting for a whole day and get extra food so we can sit around for two days and not have to stress out. You know, it's, it's always this, this yep. trade-offs. So, so as we're evolving as humans, the concept of a thing called money gets, gets created by humans when they realize that the idea of I got some stuff and you got some stuff and we should trade doesn't always work. So the idea of barter came into humans consciousness. And then the concept of let's barter for a thing that's in the middle, right? The most saleable good. And it's called money. And it took many forms over human history, uh, as we know. And some of those worked really well and some not so well until humans figured out that gold was the best money. And it was understood to be the best money because humans, again, examining their motivations and the reasons why we were able to trust this intermediary good called money, we came to recognize its principles of scarcity and fungibility and um, uh, what are the other ones? Uh, divisibility, right? There's, mm-hmm. all, there's, there's a bunch. I can't even think of them all right yeah, now. Yeah. Many people, you know, can look it up, right? So we say, okay, money needs to have these things. Gold bubbles to the top is the one that has the best. Like it doesn't rust away. It lasts forever. It's one of those things. It, each piece of gold is the same as every other piece of gold. You can combine them, melt them down. So the, it had all these mm-hmm. great properties to be this thing that humans could use as money. The concept of money fulfilled the role with this thing called gold. And, uh, and that's how it went for a long, long time. And so I see this thing called money as the most important invention or the most important tool humans have ever created, because look at what it did for us. It allowed us to divide up our labor and specialize in things. And therefore we could trade with each other without, um, 
without worrying that we couldn't get that other thing because we had nothing to trade with, right? So this intermediary, intermediary good called money allowed humans to prosper. It's the reason why we have all the productivity and, and prosperity that you see all around us. Everything you see is a function of the fact that humans had money to work with. So if money is the most important tool ever invented, the best form of money therefore becomes the most important, best invention ever. And Bitcoin is that, in my opinion. It's the newest iteration of money and it has all the properties of gold and one, at least one additional, which is, well, I could actually think of two. One is trans, uh, transportability over communications lines. I didn't come up with this. Other people have said it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also programmability. You can, you can decide how the money can actually be moved around indirectly uh, and no one can turn that back off. You know, like if you write a script, a multi-sig script of some kind where you lock up the money for a period of time or after only certain signatures, no one can change that once it's set up. So this is unique to, to money, to humans being able to use the tool called money. And the ability to transport it over communications lines is a first. And not technically a first because we've been sending digital money around the planet for quite a while. The difference in this system is that it's not run by a single entity. There's no uh, central third party to, that you have to trust. And that's what makes Bitcoin very important. It acts more like a commodity that comes out of the earth that no one controls like gold. Um, so there's this sort of uncontrolled aspect to it. There's, it's not co-opted or controlled directly by any single group, uh, single person or group of people. Um, you know, if we're going to be technical, everybody on the planet um, can collectively agree to change Bitcoin. So can it be controlled or manipulated? Kind of. But in its current iteration, it has to be pretty much universally agreed upon because the rules are such that you don't have to agree to changes that somebody else says you, you must accept. And that's mm-hmm. it's part of the, it's part of the beauty of Bitcoin is it's, it's made to um, resist the um, takeover by a person or a group. So it's unique. It's got all these great characteristics. It's a, it's a tool called money. It's now the best uh, form of money. So as far as I'm concerned, it's the most important invention humans have ever seen on this planet ever. No. And I, I mean, I think, you know, as we go forward, like it's just like you said, it's going to take the incentive out of a lot of the evil, um, you know, uh, and, you know, I mean, how did JP Morgan make a ton of money? There's multiple different ways, but JP Morgan also made a ton of money off of World War One. Um, you know, so did Andrew Carnegie. <laughs> um, so, you know, it, yeah. it, you you remove that incentive of the government just being able to spend money like jeff booth made this point um i had him on and we were talking about and he said so say we're in a bitcoin standard you know and i have my bitcoin or whatever like i could get an army but i would have to part with my bitcoin to get that army oh totally so i say why would you do that you know like why would you you gotta you gotta have so much money to pay this army to go do what you want and hopefully your money doesn't run out till to, to you get to your end goal, whatever that might be. But what would your end goal be? Like what? Would, and I heard people say this to me. Well, what if China, you know, decides to come over here and take us over? Right. OK, so they got to send a lot of people across the ocean in planes and boats. And then, then when they get there, they got to fight 300 million people that are already here that already own guns. Um, if you're in a world of hard money where they are working on the same you know, with the same pile of money we are, right? Everybody mm-hmm. on the planet, there's only one money everybody recognizes and there's only so much of it. And you, if you have it, you could have the most of it, but what are you going to deploy it as? Because as soon as you spend it out there, it doesn't mean you're getting it back. 
So the incentives disappear for you to just send. What are you going to do after you send them all over there? Half of them die. They establish some. They got a couple hundred square miles along the coast and the rest of the country is still free because they don't have enough. They can't send their entire population here. What's mm-hmm. the point of that? Were they just going to leave China and just come here and live here instead? Kill us mm-hmm. all and just live here and leave that place empty? No one's going to do that. It's absurd. You're never going to take over the world or another country under a Bitcoin standard. No one's going to want to. It's pointless. It's mm-hmm. just freaking pointless. If you could go steal all their money, maybe, but you can't. You can't if once Bitcoin is, is more ubiquitous and everybody understands it, nobody's going to be able to steal anybody's money without, I mean, not again, can, will somebody capitulate when they're threatened, their lives threatened, their family's lives are threatened? Absolutely. Some people are going to go, please take it. You know what's going to happen? Half the time, they're going to get the Bitcoin and still kill them because now they were ID. Like, it's really, it's a yeah. no win. Like, you got to, the game theory here sucks. If you get, if somebody, right, this is why you got to set if your you, Bitcoin up. You, you want to dissuade the, the armed robber from killing you or taking you around town to unlock your Bitcoin. Because if he kills you, he doesn't get the Bitcoin, but now he's a murderer. And now he's got to worry people heard the gunshots or whatever. Like you got to just start game theory and the stuff out here. The incentives just freaking disappear at every level to do this shit. Mm-hmm. You know, will people still bang other people over the head for whatever their gold jewelry? Of course, for whatever it is, their TV in their apartment, this crime is crime you know but mm-hmm. if you don't have a government preventing people from arming themselves like i like right here in new york i'm not allowed to walk around with a hidden pistol in my belt not without their permission um it's really hard just to own a gun, gun in new york right i mean if every woman on the street was had a 38 pistol in their in their person knew how to use it even grandma would be a you wouldn't maybe want to mess with you know what i mean like the, yeah. it just oh, yeah. changes everything but no everybody can't have guns because they'll go around killing everybody no they won't no, they yeah. won't. People don't want to go killing everybody. They just want to be left alone. Most people. It's really mm-hmm. the arguments are disgusting. They're disingenuous. They're bullshit. But they're perpetuated by the people in power. The narrative, you know, the mainstream media. It's all done on purpose to get you to believe and to get you to. We don't need guns. You don't need a gun. I don't have one. So your neighbors are turning you in. And oh man, it's just like a, it's a viral, disgusting feedback loop of of tyranny and. A producer friend of mine had the has a great line. He said that his view on guns is that they shouldn't exist, but you can't do that. You know what I mean? Like if you could make it so that they didn't exist at all in in, in the world, then do that. But he's like, but that's impossible. So, you know, you you deserve to be able to protect yourself, you know, right. you, you yeah. know, and, and most and most gun proponents are not. I mean, by most, I mean, 99.99999% do not, are not violent people. They're just not. protecting themselves. And, well, they're um, hunters, whatever. Yeah, of course. Yeah. No, everybody what, that has a level the, head what's, knows this What's stuff. the business? What's the government's business in, you know? Uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, because, you know, like I have a concealed carry, but. You know, then it's also like, oh, like, thank you, government, for the permission. Yeah, that's uh, bullshit. You, know. you shouldn't need their permission. That's disgusting. I think it's just it, so disgusting. Um, so uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about um, was your your little Twitter spit with a uh, spat with uh, Chama, um, Palia Patia, I think is how you pronounce it. I, I, I won't I even probably try. butchered it. But uh, but so what was. <laughs> You said online, I've seen, you know, you said like, oh, I should post a lot, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Um, what was your reaction when you saw him come after you? 
well, my immediate reaction was like, is this even real? <laughs> um, yeah. You know, the guy's got 1.4 million followers, so he's clearly liked by a lot of people. And I'm like, is this guy really attacking me? He, he certainly doesn't know me. I have no, you can't Google me and, and get much about me. That's for sure. <laughs> um, so I, you know, was a little shocked uh, because, and I really didn't know this guy very well. I had heard about him, never really listened to his talks, had heard mostly positive stuff. Mm-hmm. But again, without really looking into it, I don't know. He's just some rich dude that, some people like, and maybe he's got some good philosophical takes on certain things. I don't really even know, but yeah, it was a little weird to see him attack me the way he did, but I indirectly attacked him, but I think my attack was perfectly honest. Well, I guess that depends. If you consider like me, everything outside of Bitcoin to be shit coins, then it was a perfectly honest attack. He promotes what I consider to be garbage that's wrecking people and fooling people mm-hmm. into thinking they're buying into some future value system that's just going to fall apart. And they're trusting these people that are well-known and wealthy because they think they won't lie to them. But the problem is they have vested interests, conflicts of interest all over the place. And the average dude on the street either is too clueless or doesn't have the time to really try to figure out the conflicts of interest or even look at where they might be. There's so many levels to this stuff. When you get to a level of that guy and you're so close to insiders in big business and government, um, you know stuff that other people don't know. And you're aware of how these systems work at, at levels that the average person doesn't know. Different systems like, like just trading weird derivatives that are created out of thin air, bets on top of bets on top of bets. It's all so contrived and unnatural. And it's a way for the people in power to write words on paper, creating conditions where they get to move money around in ways that more of it lands in their bank account and some of it comes out of yours, right? Like mm-hmm. that's about as, as plain as you can explain it, right? They set up these stupid games that literally just worldwide monetary games of betting and um, and collusion and all kinds of stuff. I mean, you know, any any bill that's before some committee in Congress where an industry might benefit if the bill is passed and you're in that committee and the discussion is clearly going in favor of this bill getting passed. And maybe that's because lobbyists promised you a lot of money. You know, that's how it goes. Mm-hmm. But you go like, you know, it's pretty much a no brainer for me to go buy some stocks of companies in that industry. That that goes on every day is just outside of the view of almost everybody. They just don't put two and two together. These mm-hmm. politicians are the worst. They not only control your lives indirectly through all their stupid words on paper, but they're gaming the system right out from under you every single day. They are screwing you. They're screwing your stock portfolio. They're just screwing the world because they're in control of all this shit. It's so disgusting. That woman, AOC from Queens, New York, a bartender, is worth millions right now. Do you know that? She has mm-hmm. capitalized on her wholesome, you know, uh, whatever, you know, upbringing, you know, from the streets kind of person. And she's got like a clothing line and like, oh, yeah, oh, come on. These people have become celebrities. It's so absurd. They're it's so, so absurd. I, I, I've joked before my because, I mean, my wife loves London and like, you know, the royal family, like all that kind of stuff, you know, and um. And I, I try not to bring up how pointless they are. Yeah. Um, but I, I did say, I said, what, do, like, maybe what the US needs to do is have some like real grown ups behind the scenes that are like <laughs> kind of running the show. And then you could have like popularity contests 
um to have like the 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 king and queen of the united states you know be like aoc and i don't know like the rock you know or something like that and it's like oh these are the dignitaries that go around the world but like they don't actually make they'd be like the king and queen of the of london or of uh, the uk you know and they wouldn't actually do anything yeah, no they would power. just, you just know, they would heads. just be figures. And I, I was like, maybe that's what the U.S. needs, because it, it, it is. I mean, it is disgusting to I mean, how many times do we see lawmakers passing off these, you know, deals and, you know, like this basically insider trading um, oh, every day? It, Are you kidding? And me? they probably salivate going to work to figure out what how their next inside get. play is going to be and how many millions they can direct into their bank account every one of them i'm telling you but i shouldn't say that i i want to believe there's a handful of really honest hard-working government officials that are trying not to be corrupt and trying not to succumb to the uh obvious conflicts of interest and incentives that are built literally built into the system i really would like to believe you know somebody like Rand paul is one of the more upstanding or cynthia lummis you know Mm-hmm. People like her into Bitcoin and understand the unfairness of the existing monetary system, you know? Um, Do you yeah, think so it- I, I, it's not fair to paint them all that way. I just think a majority of them, e- either they come corrupted or they just become corrupted once they're there. Do you think that Chamath is becoming or trying? I've seen people say he's trying to position himself into politics because he well, used I to be he like was- a big Bitcoiner. And now it's like he's get like I saw him like tweet something about how inflation is like good or something you know like, oh that was absurd he got trashed for that one he's such a bonehead i can't believe he could say such stupid stuff for a man in his position to not know better about what he's talking about on something like that is pretty sad because i know he was wrong it's just an absurd yeah. thing to say inflation is not going to cause prices to rise or whatever that tweet was i saw it it was so absurd and so like yeah now what i heard is he's is or maybe was running for governor of California. Um, uh, you know, people mm. that get a lot of money believe they're special and they need the ego boost. And like, I, I, you know, it's pretty hilarious that a guy who would even attempt to run for governor would say the things he said to a total stranger on Twitter just because his feathers uh, got ruffled or whatever. I don't know. That's what I don't, you know, you strike me as a, someone that's kind of like me where I'm like, I don't care what anybody says about me at all. You know what I mean? Like, and, and I, I'm, I'm amazed at the insecurity of some of these people, you know, where it's like, they just go on and they just start lashing out. And it's like, like you said, he's like, he needs the ego boost and he's going on, maybe he's going on Twitter for his ego boost. And then he sees surfer Jim sitting there saying something about him and he just can't handle it. He can't handle it. He's got to go after him. You know, what's funny is he was an afterthought in that tweet because I was triggered by seeing Mike Novogratz get added to the, uh, speaker lineup for 2021 he wasn't even your focus well i knew chamath was speaking and i i just didn't care and i didn't it didn't trigger me to send out a tweet but then i see the novogratz announcement and i'm like come on now you got two of these these guys are big guys like big wig guys well known dealing in the billions of dollars in in their different you know like Novogratz has his galaxy digital fund and whatnot. And, and, you know, I could remember him back in 2017 promoting the idea of a balanced crypto portfolio. And I just can't like going, what is he talking about? It's vaporware. And I, I could almost guarantee if you were to go back and look, you know, half of uh, half or more of the crap that he would have recommended for that portfolio uh, three years ago is already dead and gone. 
you know, yeah. and of course he's rebalanced by now because that's what you do in the investment world. You rebalance. It's just bullshit. You know, what's sad is that we're talking about a protocol for money. We're not talking about a stock. Or we're not talking about a thing that creates a product that has profits and overhead and dividends. It's not, it's not that this, this thing, Bitcoin is completely unique. It's an asset class unto itself in a, in a way. And um, the average person, because, because it, it garners a market price, it garners a price that can be traded for the market's existing money. Mm-hmm. It looks like everything else. It's a tradable item. Let's trade it. The price goes up and down, right? But what we're really seeing is the adoption of smart people recognizing this is the newest money on the planet. And I need to get a bunch of it because I, I want to have a larger share of the pie, right? This mm-hmm. is finite amount. And so people that get this as the newest form of money that's going to be the world's money recognize they want to get it and keep it. It's not a thing to trade. Now, you can trade it on the way of trying to accumulate more. And if you're a trader, you can win. But most people are not traders. So a guy like, you know, Novogratz, who's a trader, he sees this as a way to make, I'm going to use the word money, and I don't mean it the way everybody else means it. To me, money is Bitcoin. Everything else is just garbage, including US dollars. So everybody else talks about trading Bitcoin to make money, what they really are thinking in terms of fiat. They want more US dollars. Now, they may turn it into Bitcoin someday, but they're still calculating the entire concept of of the trade as let me get more of these dollars over here and then i'll decide what to do with them whereas i would be let me get as much of this bitcoin i never want it to go back to dollars um Mm -hmm. and so anybody who buys and holds bitcoin for the future understands this it's not about what it's worth in dollars it's about how many satoshis you can accumulate to the point at which you can either leave it for your family if you don't feel you need it to live on or begin to live on it at a point where you can comfortably use it for potentially the rest of your life. Anybody can do an actuarial calculation uh, with projections out into the future, approximately how long you'll live from however old you are when you start the calculation and how, uh, you know, what are your average expenses? And you can try to guess what they might be into the future. I mean, this is done all the time. Actuarial calculations is how Insurance companies decide how much to charge you for life insurance so they can stay profitable. They know about how many people are going to die every year and about what that's going to cost them. And as long as they take in more, they'll keep, they'll stay profitable. Mm. You do it in reverse. It's called an annuity and you can annuitize your own stash. You can decide of this amount I got sitting there, how long will this keep me living? If I was to live to 20 years beyond my life expectancy, use whatever safety factor in your calculations you want. There's a point where everybody that owns Bitcoin is going to start living off of it. They, mm-hmm. They're either going to have to because it is the world's money or because what was the point of saving it all that years? Unless you literally just want to give it to your kids and you're set otherwise, when that could be the case for many people. But I know mm-hmm. for me, I can't wait to start living off of it, living like a king, <laughs> because oh, yeah. why the hell not, man? It'll, it'll get back into society. Somebody else will get a control of this great money and they'll get to use it for their own benefit. And even if it isn't my heirs directly, um, hopefully I'll leave some to them. But, you know. I would be contributing to the worldwide circular economy, getting my Satoshis back out there into circulation so other people can use them for their own lives and their own productivity and to bring value to the world by having some money to use and work with. So the richest of people, eventually their stash is going to start going down. When their heirs get it, they'll spend it, especially heirs have no problem spending their inheritances because they don't even feel like they worked for it. It's like buy a yacht. Hell yeah. I could buy 20. Might as well buy one. Look what dad left me. You know, like, They're going to spend it. It's going to get into society. And this is good. This is what's going to prevent any one person from accumulating too much or any one group. 
because every single person cares about themselves first, their family second, their friends third, maybe their group fourth, right? Mm -hmm. So you're not going to want to kick in your hard-earned Satoshis that are scarce to the group's efforts if you haven't taken care of your own and your families and maybe your close friends, right? So big groups of people are going to be hard to coordinate unless lots of very wealthy people want to put it in to keep it coordinated and the, the goal of that group, whatever that might be. And so if it's a group of people that want to take over the world, again, the, somebody's got to fund that, you know, put the money in to make that happen. And, and if it doesn't keep coming in, if there's no way to keep it coming, it's not going to last. And so, yeah, everything changes. I, the more I think about it, the more I articulate it, as I'm trying to articulate it, I'm thinking about it as well. The, the more clearer the picture comes from me, I believe that in a, under a Bitcoin standard, the world is like a peaceful place, literally, mm -hmm. like, like so peaceful, like to the most minimum amount of violence that humans can actually like live under, you know, because again, there's always going to be some nut jobs and some greedy people out there that think, you know, they're too stupid to realize. And yeah. So, yeah, no, anyway. I, I agree. I mean, I think, you know, it's the key to an abundant and peaceful future. Yeah. Um, and so much so, I mean, I, I, I've joked about it multiple times and I don't actually think this is the case, but I said, I was like, it's so, it's so perfect timing wise that it's like, you would think Satoshi was from the future and sent it back to like, maybe like, you know, wherever he was in the future, like this, like galactic empire was, had taken over. And he was like, Oh, if we, we have the sound money that gets introduced right at the housing crash of uh, 2008, it'll fix everything. Um, so he came because, from the fixed future. Yeah. Like, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, I was like, it's certainly there's a higher percentage chance that it's that than it is that he's Craig Wright. Um, <laughs> but uh, that's great that I would totally agree with that. Actually, as, a, as, a, as outlandish as that sounds, there is no yeah. freaking way Craig Wright is. Satoshi. Exactly. Holy I know. Shit. It's like, I don't want you I to think for a second that I think Satoshi's from the future. But it's definitely not Craig, right? <laughs> no, I can't believe that that adult human can walk around on this planet and tell that lie the way he does. It is mind-blowing because everybody knows he, he can so easily prove it by signing a, a message with the private key to any one of a yep. million UTXOs. It's ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. I can't even believe it. It's like, uh, I mean, like, what are you, like, four years old? And you're like, that's mine. I made it's, it. It's you insane. Know, like, no, no, you didn't. And, and and for him to um to try to argue that Bitcoin was meant to be uh something that could be controlled by governments and not allow you to get away with things. Like I don't know. He has this sort of narrative that you know law trumps everything, and I, I, I don't. It's so weird. It's so statist, and Bitcoin is so anti-statist that it just the, the cognitive dissonance is so loud with him. It's amazing. I, I don't know. It's yeah. just amazing. It's one of the biggest laughable um, elements in this Bitcoin ecosystem. You know, I've been seeing it since the day I stepped into it and he was here before me. And I was um, like, holy shit, this guy's still here years later. <laughs> how did, how long, have, when did you first get into Bitcoin? Oh, so I, I, I first started learning really, um, you know, consciously wanting to know in early 2017 mm -hmm. so only about good time 
Well, I thought like I thought I was a genius when I watched it go to 20 grand and I owned some and I was trying to tell everybody to get some. And of course, nobody wanted to listen to me because what do do I know? I'm just a builder. And most nobody listened to me. You know, I convinced nobody back then. But luckily for me, I didn't quit. I kept learning and I kept paying attention to smart people. And when the price kept going down, I was not discouraged because I considered it only temporary and so far, it has been only temporary. It's gone way back above that since since then, as we know. So um, I was very confident that I would see this day and hopefully much beyond. You know, I, I'd like to see a million dollar Bitcoin. I think it's certainly possible within my lifetime uh, based on all the worldwide dynamics that are out there that are at play right now. So, yeah, it was, uh, you know, I was, I was fortunate. I was one of those people that stuck it out through the bear market of 18 and 19 only to be rewarded this year by having a strong hand. And I think a very, um, I think there's waves of this. Uh, you know, I could kind of see it now after having been around for a bunch of years. Uh, I'm part of the, you know, it's, it's um, lovingly referred to as the class of 2017, so to speak, mm-hmm. graduating class. You know, we were baptized and graduated in the, the, the bull run that turned into a bear run, you know. So yeah. um, those that stuck around, that, that didn't capitulate, that held through it all, that believed and kept learning, you know, we're, we are a group of people that sort of recognize each other. I, I think much of the people in this group consider themselves a, a pleb, one, you know, this, this term for, you know, relatively commoner, new kind of person, not the original gangster, you know, the OGs that we hear mm-hmm. that really got in way ahead of everybody who are probably multimillionaires right now. We're not them. Uh, at least not with our Bitcoin, we're not, but we are never quitting. You know, we are the strong hands of that generation. And I see this year a huge group of people that I feel like are like me and those other people that I that I associate with that are that are from that same epoch, let's call it. I see that happening now. It's a bull run. People are paying attention. They're learning. They want to learn. Your podcast is new. You're putting out content. People are listening to it. They're they're doing the same thing I did. They're, they're looking for the signal over all the crazy noise. And there's tons of noise. There's probably much more noise than there was back then. And it was pretty noisy back then. So mm-hmm. I was fortunate. There was a lot of great content that allowed me to stay focused and learn and believe. And, you know, it's great that you're doing it. It's, it's the reason I agreed to come on here. I am of the opinion. I, I, I sent out a tweet recently about I got a lot of knowledge in my head about all kinds of stuff. I'm 60 years old. So, uh, you know, it's a lot of shit that I've seen and done and um, much of it can benefit other people, but it doesn't help if I just keep it in my own head. So if I get it out there in words or actions, you never know what kind of positive ripple effect that could have in the lives of other people. So yeah, I'm, I'm all about regurgitating all that knowledge and letting other people take and run with it, do whatever they can with it. If it helps, great. If not, you know, discard it and, and listen to somebody else. I don't, you know, I got what yeah. I got. I got my 60 years of experience and nothing more. So I can only regurgitate the things I've come to understand or remember. And some of it is stuff that other people are completely unaware of. You know, like, I, not that this would matter. It's completely insignificant. It just came into my head. But like, I watched the entire snowboarding industry start from nothing. There was no mm-hmm. snowboarding industry when I was a kid. It just didn't exist. And I watched it go from the early iterations to this giant worldwide phenomenon. That you rivals Olympic skiing. gold medals. Oh, everything. It's, and people making millions of dollars to ride a snowboard down a mountain instead of skis. And as a surfer, I couldn't get enough of this. I was riding this little wooden thing. You can Google it right now called a snurfer. And it's a kid's oh, toy. Oh, yeah. I do remember it's a, that. I remember a seeing yellow. That. It looked like a water ski. Had a rope on the front. It had square electrical staples halfway nailed into the top. And that was what held your feet on from sliding off the thing. 
and you would just <laughs> ride this thing down a, a snowy hill, you know, in your backyard or something. And I had one as a kid. And like the entire snowboarding industry blossomed out of that like idea of standing on one single board and going down a hill. And mm -hmm. uh, it's amazing to watch. And that's just one of the things I watched go from zero to where it is, including computers. I mean, it's insane to, to think about where the personal computer has gone. Like I, I laugh when I think about the first computer that I ever had in my life, which was my parents bought. It was called a TRS-80 from Radio Shack. <laughs> and it didn't even have a, like a hard drive. It had a tape drive, a cassette. Read the, you read the programs off a cassette. You know how long it would take to load a program? And these programs uh -huh. didn't do anything. You had a command line. You had to like write your own programs. My entire family, just it was just a, a paperweight collecting dust. Nobody used it. It didn't yeah. have a user interface. Nobody wanted to learn to be a programmer. And it wasn't until like, uh, you know, 10 years later, I'm in an office and there's computers that have windows on them. And I'm like, whoa, this is what a real computer is. Okay. You know, so... Again, I watched that entire industry go to from nothing to where it is now. Cell phones, they weren't around, you know. I tell funny. this other story. Check this out. You're going to love this one. Yeah. So before before cell phones, there were pagers, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, and and so people had, you'd have to go find a pay phone to make a call, <laughs> call back the number, right? So you'd have a pager. I worked for a company. I was, I was repairing roofs way back in the 80s. And I had a pager. So they, they'd buzz me and I'd be like, oh, crap, I'm up on a roof. I have to go down sometimes get in a truck, drive to a payphone and call the office, like what's going on. So obviously it takes a little bit of time and whatnot, but you're also having to go to pay phones and spend money all the time. So uh, my pot dealer at the time <laughs> offered me this little keychain device that you could hold it up to the, um, the receiver on the phone. So when you put a quarter in a phone, um, uh -huh. it triggers a little mechanism in the phone and it sends a couple of tones across the line. And so the phone company says, okay, we just got a quarter in the box. Mm. But they don't know if the quarter is really in the box if, as long as they hear the tones. Mm -hmm. So I had a little keychain device that made the sound of a quarter. And I made <laughs> free phone calls for years. Oh, and you just man, that's dial awesome. the number and would say, please put in 50 cents. And you would just push the button twice up against the, the speaker on the phone. And it would say, thank you. And it would collect your call. And you'd be in the call and say, please deposit 25 more cents and just push the little button. The little tones would go across. I thought it was like That's so wild. classic. Like, you know, okay. So I stole from the phone company. I'm a bad person back then. I had no, I, I had yeah. less um, scruples, less, less morals. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but I was a kid and I didn't care. And I was getting free phone calls. <laughs> But Which you know, is funny look, I, compared to like nowadays, you know, uh, like, so much has changed. This is like the amazing thing. Like, there's not a payphone in sight. They were everywhere when I was a kid. That's all there was, if you, unless you had a phone in your house. And yeah, so like, I, it's just it's funny being this age. Um, when I was a kid, I'd look at anybody sixty and think about their life, what they had grown up with, what they like. Even my own grandparents, they grew up with outhouses. Two generations yeah. from me. They grew up with an outhouse when they were kids. That's incredible to me for me to think. And when they lived in a house with indoor plumbing, and a, I can remember my grandfather telling me one of his first jobs as a teenager was to live to deliver blocks of ice for people's ice boxes because no one had a refrigerator. Most people didn't have electricity. Yeah. They had an yeah. ice box. They got ice delivery. And my grandfather used to do that. That's two generations from me. That's not that long ago. He only died mm -hmm. uh, 10 years ago. It's kind of crazy to think that that man lived in a world where it just what he, he saw was amazing to, you know, wireless Internet. Oh, yeah. Like in two generations, it's it's pretty mind boggling. It's hard to imagine what it's going to be like 50 years from now. But I think Bitcoin's going to be the world's money, which is such an awesome thing, because I think the world is going to be 
way better off in 50 years. Yeah. yeah. And I, I've been thinking about it recently. Cause like, you know how, um, like you said, it's a protocol and I've, and I've uh, had other people explain that to me as well, that it's, it's the protocol that everything else is going to be built on. Um, yeah. You know, so if you have a, any kind of like shit coin, any kind of, you know, it's like, okay, that's a good idea, but it's going to be built on top of Bitcoin. And, um, and it made me think of the internet. The first time I ever saw the internet was, I think in like 94, 95. Um, and, and it was, we were at somebody's house, you know, and I'm from Pittsburgh. So we're, you know, Pirates, Penguins, Steelers fans. And, and, um, and we were at somebody's house and they said, oh, you know, we have this internet thing because their son was over in Czechoslovakia or Czech Republic, whatever it's called. Um, and he was working there and he would send them emails. You know, and it was like, that's the only reason they got it. So they could communicate with them. And then we said, well, what could you do with it? And they said, you want to see something crazy? We can check the score of the pirate game right now. And I'm like, what? And they, I remember them pulling it up and it was the pirates versus the reds. And I'm sitting there and it showed the score. And me and my dad were like, whoa, like that's incredible, you know? And, and then you didn't hear about the internet, for, you know, for like another handful of years. And then it just explodes. And like, so I kind of liken that to Bitcoin where it was like maybe in the, the past couple, you know, bull cycles, you know, you heard about Bitcoin and it was like, well, that's really cool. And it's like, I wonder, is this the cycle where it just explodes? You know, like Michael Saylor said, like, I'm really, I believe in the stock to flow model. Um, but I also believe like Michael Saylor said, what, what happens? All your models are destroyed the moment billionaires just say, all right, we're going to grab this and hold it. Yeah. And, you know, so, I mean, what do you see happening, you know, as we wrap up here, um, you know, over the next, I mean, nobody has a crystal ball, but uh, you know, I mean, I, we keep seeing Bitcoin leaving the exchanges and basically going into cold, deep storage. Um, I see, and you know, the supply suffocation with the halvings, you know, that's going to continue to drive the, you know, the supply and demand, but also people being able to lock up their Bitcoin to use cash. And I'm one of those people, you know, like I'm, I'm looking at like, oh, hey, you know, we're building a house instead of, you know, mortgage, all that crazy stuff. Like, why don't I just lock up these Bitcoin and, you know, in take a loan against them and, and pay for things with it. And that takes them off the market even further. So what do you, um, for me, I see us on the potent on the verge of hyper bitcoinization but i'm also like prepared for a bear market eventually what do you think is going to happen oh i could i could definitely see another bear market where we see you know we hit a, we hit some high somewhere and pull back a, a fairly substantial amount you know 20 30 40 50% i i could see that happening again you know this is a um, we're watching the adoption of a new money protocol in real time across the planet. So a lot of people have to change their minds and a lot of people are going to continue to chase fiat gains in this thing that they could trade in and out of. As a matter of fact, a lot of the big investors that we, we hear about that are potentially getting into a position right now in Bitcoin, they're stuck with rules that prevent them from holding too high of a percentage. And when the Bitcoin value goes up high enough, they will have to sell to mm -hmm. quote unquote rebalance their position, which is is weird because it equates it to everything else in, in a particular portfolio. And I don't think that's, it's almost like, you know, saying bonds and stocks are the same. Um, they're not, and yet they might be in a balanced portfolio. So they say, well, okay, Bitcoin as well, let's balance the portfolio. But when you 
when you talk, when you frame it that way, you're by default, you're framing it uh, and, and pegging the framing to dollars. You're, you're, you're saying all these things are part of my portfolio of what? Of US dollar value. It's not my portfolio of Bitcoin value because that's only this one piece of it, right? Mm-hmm. So you're not, we're not measuring the world in Bitcoin yet. We're measuring still the world in other fiat currencies. And most people are going to keep doing this for quite some time. It's going to be hard. Certainly older people, people in my generation, they're just never going to not think that way because they, they would have to reprogram themselves. And it's too many decades of living under this, this concept of this is money. Uh, but kids born today will live in a Bitcoin standard and they'll, they'll value everything in Bitcoin. They won't even be able to comprehend the idea that we're going to value it in this crazy other money that they used to print out of thin air, you know? So the narrative will change over a couple of decades. Um, um, I forget. How did you phrase the question? There was something else I wanted to say about, shoot, sorry about that. What do no, I no, see? No. How it unfolding or something? Yeah. You know, I mean, are we potentially on the, the, verge of hyper bitcoinization i mean i think everybody should go into it personally i think everybody should you know prepare for you know always have contingencies and you know it could be a bear market and and everything but i mean where do you see this going all right so yeah uh i so we see this adoption a lot of people wanting to own bitcoin and that certainly is going to push the price up relative to us dollars which is again how we're valuing everything around us i i still do as well it's mm-hmm. hard not to so what i see ultimately happening is the dollar becoming worth less and less and less and people not wanting to trade back to dollars at some point and so instead of holding a position of bitcoin and borrowing against it nobody's going to want to borrow that crappy money because you're going to borrow it and do what with it? Nobody else mm-hmm. is going to want it from you. So you can't do anything with it because it's useless. People want the better money, the, the stuff you already hold. So this concept of borrowing a bit against Bitcoin will go away at some point. I mean, mm-hmm. you could borrow against it. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't know. How do you borrow against Bitcoin if they're not giving you some Bitcoin back? Like you don't put up money to borrow money. Mm-hmm. Right, right now, you don't go to the bank and give them 100 grand to borrow 50. Nobody Mm -hmm. does that. You put up your house to borrow 50. You know what I mean? You put up something else. So somebody might put up some real asset to borrow some Bitcoin, but they're not going to put up Bitcoin to borrow some shitcoin. It's just Mm -hmm. not going to happen. Nobody's going to bother. It's pointless. Right. Mm -hmm. So you'll you'll put your Bitcoin to, to, you know, to to rent a yacht. You'll put it as collateral. So in case you sink the yacht, they keep your Bitcoin like something like you might use it for other things, uh, you know, a type of value transfer or, or trade. But now, eventually, everybody that owns Bitcoin, I don't care, it's the biggest hedge fund, the biggest corporation, I don't care how many they accumulate. One day, some human is going to start spending it, mm-hmm. whether for the benefit of the corporation or for the benefit of the people that own the stock of the corporation. It doesn't matter. It gets distributed as share, a dividend share. It doesn't matter. It's going to get distributed. It will never, ever, ever stay in one place. It never, ever will. Everybody, someday, some person is going to want to spend it. They're going to need to spend it. Mm-hmm. And sure, it will reaccumulate in larger amounts under the control of other humans who have the ability to live within their means. That mm-hmm. is just normal. So people that aren't rich now will become rich because they learned how to um, um, attract and retain the value of their productivity that somebody's paid them for, you know, the value that they've given. Uh, some people are very good at that. They're frugal. They don't need to live on much and they produce enough value that they can take in 
way more than they need to live on. And that's just a normal way. That's human productivity right there. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. If you can make a profit, if you can bring value, if you're bringing value, if it's a voluntary exchange, I say to you, I got something, I want a hundred grand worth of value. We'll, we'll use us dollar, you know, numbers for now. And you say, great, I got a hundred grand. I think what you're giving me is totally worth that hundred grand. I worked for two years to get it. It's worth two years of my hard labor for that beautiful boat that you got in your driver that you no longer want. It doesn't matter if it's a voluntary trade. You've given me two years of your time for maybe what I only took me one year of my time because I earn more than you. I bring other value to people and they're willing to pay me much more for what I do versus what you do. So I was able to get the money to buy the boat in one year. I used one year of my life to get a boat. You gave me two years of your life to, to, to take it off my hands. Did I make a profit? You know, it depends on how you value your time and the money and everything else in the middle, but that's all this ever is. And one day when there's only Bitcoin to transfer as that middle unit of exchange, that sale, most saleable good, as it's called, um, everybody, it doesn't matter how much they have, you're going to have to start spending it. And it will just trickle all over the world in society at the speed, at the natural speed that people are exchanging value. Uh, you know, governments, people that, that identify as government would have you believe that there needs to be a certain speed at which the money rotates around the economy. They call it the velocity of money. It's a bunch of bullshit. The money rotates around the economy as fast as people want it to. There mm -hmm. is no overriding um, directive or, or average speed at which money should transfer hands. They're just, it doesn't exist. It's like, if people want to make a trade, it happens unless mm -hmm. they're being forced to do it. And that's the speed at which money circulates around the economy, the speed at which voluntary trade happens. And there is no way to really measure it. Uh, I mean, maybe there is, I'm, I'm not... I'm not trained directly in all that stuff, but the, the concept is, is what I'm getting at here. It's a, it's a pretty simple concept. I don't, you don't need to be a, a you know, certified economist to understand these simple principles, or, mm -hmm. you know? So anyway, I hope, uh, look, if I'm wrong about this stuff, feel free to call me an asshole on Twitter <laughs> or whatever, you know, any of you economics experts out there that think I'm spewing a bunch of crap, no problem. Um, if I think I'm right, I'll try to defend myself. If I'm wrong, I will hopefully humbly admit it and run away with my tail between my legs not to be too embarrassed <laughs> well i know that i don't think you're i don't think you're wrong um so I, I i you know i appreciate your insight and i know a lot of people do um and you know keep uh <laughs> making people like uh you know the the shit coiners that have uh were original bitcoiners now turn shit coiners and yeah, have crazy. their insecurities uh through the roof keep making them feel uncomfortable because it, it is funny to see you know what i mean it's like uh, you know you are you not comfortable in your skin? You know, are you not comfortable with who you are as you know, you, you, you have to go after and attack people. And that's always interesting to see. So hey, um, uh, can I, and just, I know um, that you're not uh, afraid to pull punches either. So uh, no, definitely not. That's one, when, when you get a little older, you, you tend to care less what people think. <laughs> yeah, so I got yeah. that going for me. Um, what, um, oh shoot. Oh yeah. So the, the whole point of me sending that original tweet was not really to bash Novogratz or Chamath, uh, you know, I was just calling them out as shit coiners. It was, as far as I'm it's, concerned, it's just it, a you're fact. Stating fact. Yeah, you're uh, you know, all truth. right. So plenty of people agree. Well, clearly he felt it was a derogatory statement to call him. Novogratz didn't say a word. He probably laughed at it or didn't even see it. Who knows? These guys probably get so many tweets through their thread. They probably don't even see half of them, but he mm -hmm. clearly saw it and reacted to it. But um, I was, I tweeted it out because I was more disappointed believing that I was going to a Bitcoin only conference. 
Yeah, and I told the CEO directly, they had me on Bitcoin Magazine, and I told him, I just was disappointed that you're having people there. And, and he said, basically, it is a Bitcoin conference. They're not allowed to get up there and shill a bunch of shit coins. It's not why they're speakers. And they have knowledge and they have longevity in the space. And so plenty of people acknowledge them as Bitcoiners. I just don't see them as really upholding the true ethos of Bitcoin um, because of the promotion of so many other things. They put a lot of money into their pocket. And I think wreck a lot of unsuspecting trustworthy people that are just going on that famous person's reputation which look that's their own fault it's up to you to do your own homework you know caveat emptor if you're Mm -hmm. too stupid to not know what you're investing in and you get taken by some charlatan who seems like a cool guy on tv well then that's on you right uh but at the same time if you are that charlatan on tv i think it's helpful if you. you get called out on it so other people can their radar gets turned on and they go, Whoa, I didn't know that about him. Maybe I ought to pay attention. You know? So like, it's like a public service announcement. I'm out yeah. there blowing the horn saying, look, anybody who's didn't hear this, you might want to factor this in, you know, how much you really want to trust this guy, you know? So that's really when you're calling somebody out, shit posting about stuff, that's what we're more or less doing is we're trying to shine a spotlight on some potentially nefarious behavior and, you know, everybody can make their own judgment sort of thing. So um, I yeah, I was just disappointed that I, I, I guess I'm spoiled. I've only gone really to Bitcoin only conferences where everybody there just wanted to talk about Bitcoin and they were relatively small, especially compared to this one. This I hear 10,000 people. And I mm-hmm. probably I probably haven't been at a conference more than 500. So that's a mm-hmm. huge difference. So, yeah. uh, you know, I'm used to this very intimate exchange of ideas between just Bitcoin. There's no shit coining. There's no sponsors that are into any shit coining. I don't think that's going to be the case at 2021. I think there's going to be all kinds of sponsorships by shitcoiners indirectly mm-hmm. as much as they possibly can because this is the audience they want to go target people that are into quote unquote cryptocurrencies which i think is the biggest joke you yeah. know moniker out there for this crazy industry that has one one player in it that matters and a bunch of scamming copycats that created a giant industry that just moving money around and put more of it in in some people's pockets and less of it in others. And that's all it's doing. When you own Bitcoin, you transfer some shitty fiat money to somebody else's pocket, but you get in your pocket the best money the world's ever seen. So that's like a great trade. <laughs> you know, yeah. buying these shit coins just to profit in some more fiat currency, you're just playing around in the mud over there. It's pointless. You know, just get some real money and call it a day. Yeah. You know, well, it's like uh, with, uh, with Daniel Prince, uh, um, said i don't know if you listened to him on the one spitting podcast but he i've said, listened many times yes yeah he said uh he said you come for number go up but stay for number go down um <laughs> meaning that the price of everything goes down yes. in terms of bitcoin it's amazing and, and yep. it's so true um but uh are we, so are you you'll be in miami um yeah so we'll, we'll have to we'll have to link up while we're there um, oh definitely i'll be there for just the back part of it we're going to be doing a little bit of a, a documentary that we're working on oh, um, cool yeah it's bumping right up against my family vacation but we'll be uh but i'll be going straight from vacation to to the conference to to get some interviews and stuff like that Very so cool. um so we'll have to link up and are you going to do some surfing down in miami not likely because Miami doesn't get good surf generally it takes it takes very unique conditions to get good surfable waves in the Miami area but it does happen um, mm-hmm. but it's rare and that is not the time of year that it's to likely to happen well at any time of the year you can get just the right storm just the right swell pushes in from the north and gets between the Bahama Islands 
and the coast of Miami, but it's a small wave window. Mm -hmm. uh, the Bahama Islands basically brought block all the ocean waves that would come from the east, from any storms that are out in the ocean. So like when hurricanes are coming towards the coast from, you know, across the tropical Atlantic, they're pushing swells out ahead of them. But Miami feels none of it. It, yeah. it passes the northern tip of the Bahama Islands and starts hitting at the middle of the coast in Florida. But when that storm gets far enough north near the Outer Banks, it'll send a swell straight down south and it will squeeze in between the Bahama Islands and it will break all the way down as far south as Miami. Okay. Um, but July is not the time of year for not that generally. Um, but if I saw a swell on the horizon and it looked like it was going to be surfable one of those days, I might figure out a way to go surfing. Although I'm definitely not going to bother carrying a surfboard down there. I'll just try to find one that I could borrow for a day. You know, what we need to do is get you and Tony Hawk. Cause he'll be speaking there. Get you yeah. and Tony Hawk either in a, in an empty pool skateboarding or if there's <laughs> a swell, get you guys out on surfboards together. I think that'd be awesome. Well, Tony Hawk does surf. Uh, I can skateboard, but I am so far from his talent level. <laughs> and I'm sure there'll be a Most thousand guys <laughs> at this conference that are way better skateboarders than me and probably way better surfers. So um, I may not be the best candidate, but thanks for the... Uh, yeah, no, I'm all, I'm all for it. But if it if it uh, if it comes to that, I'll if there's a, if there's an opportunity, I'll push for it. I'll say yeah, let's yeah. get let's get you guys out there. So I already then, asked uh, about the the half pipe, and they're not going to let regular folks skate on it because of the liability. Because I thought uh, I would, uh, if I could, I would definitely ride it because I can. Uh, I'm certainly again, I'm I'm not very good, and I'm old, and so but you're capable. You know, I'm rusty, but I can do it. I did it last year actually, just out of curiosity. Is a a ramp in a local park, not too far from me. So, I mean, I can still do it. I'm, I'm definitely rusty. I'd probably want to practice a little before I went, but I've already been told that they're not going to let regular folks get on it. You know, so uh, that's just the way it is. It's a, it's a shame. All right. Um, well, uh, where can people find you at? Uh, at no, just on Twitter, really surfer Jim W is my Twitter handle. Yep. That's pretty much it. My and the, that website for that. Uh, yeah. Your DMS are open. Um, oh, the surf and, park. Yeah. That's just yeah, the, the long surf park.com. And uh, yeah, support it. If you want to be an investor, you know, reach out. You know, there's a contact link on the website. So, you know, any uh, of you really rich Bitcoiners out there that might be listening. Want to start making money, have your money make money. Well, you know, we're going to be hopefully making waves and sats. So yeah, return yeah. on investment might be in the form of Bitcoin anyway. So you never know. That's true. That's true. All right. Well, hey, Jim, I appreciate it so much hey, for coming on. Thank excellent. you for your time. Uh, you know, good timing because I actually have to get up and leave right now and I have just enough time to get where I have to go. So I appreciate you inviting me. I'd love to talk about Bitcoin and surfing all day long. So thanks for having me. I hope some of what I said helps anybody who heard it. And if you want to challenge me, feel free. Um, if you're going to challenge in good faith with good, solid, reasonable arguments, I will engage. But if you're just going to accuse and, um, you know, FUD the issue, then I'm just going to tell you to fuck off and I'm going to block you. So I don't have the time, <laughs> right? I have all the yep. time in the world to negotiate and talk to people who are going to uh, debate in good faith with real facts, but not a bunch of crazy bullshit. I got no time for that. I'm too old. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. I think we should all go that way. Well, yeah. All right, Jim, I'll let you go. Thanks again for coming Thank on. You. Thank you very much. Very much appreciate it. Looking forward to hanging out in uh, Miami. Awesome. Thanks. All right.
thanks again to Jim for coming on. I really appreciate him uh, coming on, taking the time to, uh, you know, give his thoughts. I mean, I love hearing, you know, Bitcoiners all have their own little perspective and, and how they got there and, and where they see this is going. But, um, you know, we all have basically the same value. So um, it's great to hear and also for him to share a lot of uh, surfing knowledge because uh and stories because i you know don't know much about that and i you know a lot of us don't so um and uh and also kind of fun to hear how uh you know eye-opening it was to see uh your tweet go viral so uh yeah thanks again to everybody for listening if you want to reach out to me it's at bitcoin simply on twitter and the email is bitcoin made simple podcast at gmail.com thanks again everybody talk to you later